Thank you, worship team. Welcome, everybody. It's a joy to be together. And um, if you're new here or maybe second time here and haven't filled out a connection card, we, we would love for you to do that so we could get to know you better. Uh, or if there's a way we can pray for you uh, or communicate, we got a really encouraging card this last Sunday and just kind of helped us reaffirm some things we've been working on. And so the, the, all that input is so helpful to us. And so uh, we hope that you'll avail yourself of that tool uh, in that connection card. Um, I have a deep conviction, and it seems to be even welling up even more, um, that if there's going to be fruit in our ministry, if we're going to continue to see changed lives, uh, it's going to be because we prayed, because we sought God, and we just cast all our hope on him and said, God, here it is. We're doing our best, but our best isn't enough unless you step in, unless you exert your power and your wisdom. And so it begins on our knees. We uh, have some opportunities we're trying to provide for us as people to gather together in prayer. It seems God uniquely shows up when, when his people gather together. And we've had a great time on Saturday mornings with some men out at the new property. We invite all men, 7 a.m., all boys, come as we seek God together up on that hill that overlooks the city. We pray for the city. We pray for our outreach. We pray for a movement of God. We pray for the body. We also have a periodic, and we're going to have one coming up uh, on the 21st of this month, Saturday at 6 o'clock, where we're calling all God's people to come together to pray and to seek God, to cover our vacation Bible school with prayer, and ask God to do what only God can do, transform lives and homes, and then to pray for the other needs in the community. So I invite you to step into that, to take advantage of those opportunities we have to Ask God to move. And in light of that, this morning, um, our only hope that we would really understand God's word, our only hope that it would change us is asking God to do it. And so let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful, and I'm sure my friends here would agree, that you so love the world that you gave your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Thank you for the gift of salvation. And Lord, thank you that you didn't leave humanity to try to figure this life out and to figure out what to do, but you gave us your revelation and your word. Please, Holy Spirit, help us understand it now so we can apply it and live it out for your glory and for your purposes. I ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Titus. We begun this book some weeks ago, and as we kind of wind down now, we're in chapter three. And as I was, as I break down books, sometimes it's not knowing exactly how to how to how many verses to do and that type of thing. And so I remember reading through this, and and I, I kept getting to verse five and eight, and I'm like, oh, there's just so much there. I got to stop at verse eight. And so that's what we're going to look at. Uh, Titus chapter three, verse five through eight. And a lot of this is what we've just sung. Um, powerful truth. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life, 
And this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good, and they're profitable for all men. You know, there's been a constant emphasis throughout this book. It's made on demonstrating a relationship to the Lord by, by treating others by doing good works. In other words, it's written to the saved and telling the saved, if you want to work out and let, a, let the community see what it means to be saved, you'll do good deeds, not the other way around. But there's been that emphasis on it. There's been an emphasis on building up people, teaching truth. It's been the thread all the way through this book. But as I read these verses, a problem surfaces in my mind. And it seems one of the problems of religious experience or spiritual experience is that it's difficult for some people to get around to be spiritually motivated. There are a number of reasons for this. While there's many demands on your time and my time, sometimes resources become an issue, obstacle. We're not really good at juggling all of it. And often, as we evaluate the slate of things we could do, the spiritual pursuits get put on the back burner. Because after all, somebody else can do it. And so motivation becomes a real issue. It's shown in lack of devotion. But when you see incredible devotion, if you were to evaluate it and observe their motivation, oftentimes you'll discover the reason is because of this word we're going to talk about for a few moments here. And there's those who have insidious determination and overwhelming devotion in working. And their motivation is if I can just work hard enough, at the end of my life I got a chance to go to heaven. Is that a proper motivation? Well, according to verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, not on our righteousness. If that's your motivation, that your good outweighs your bad, you're in trouble. Because it'll never happen. We can never be good enough to have a relationship with a holy God. We need help. That's the word we're going to talk about. A lot of people who are highly motivated in the spiritual realm hope they'll be saved as a reward. But the church, and specifically Paul's telling Titus, leaders have a big problem. The problem is found that if people have a hard time being spiritually motivated... And then if they are, it's only for a hope of heaven or reward. And if you take away the possibility of a reward, how on earth can you keep them motivated? How do you keep believers involved in each other's lives? How would you keep them inspired at all? Well, as I look back on my ministry, I can think of ways I've tried. I'm probably not alone in this. Sometimes you plead. I mean, you beg people. And there's some sensitive souls who will respond. You can threaten them. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this if you don't do that. People are going to do what people want to do. That never works. You can challenge them. But it's amazing to me, the more you challenge people, it seems they become totally inoculated against it after a while. 
It's like they kind of tune you out. There he goes again, challenging us, that type of thing. So what do you do to keep people motivated? How are you motivated? That's an important question. I'm thankful Scripture deals with it because Paul tells Titus how he's to motivate the believers in Crete. And that motivation comes by underscoring what's important. And he starts out by saying there needs to be an emphasis on where salvation originates. There's got to be an emphasis on the source of salvation and where it comes from. First of all, we have to notice that Paul's emphasis as far as ministry is concerned is teaching. He's constantly underscoring the spiritual truths that are important. And Paul, more than anything, wants God's people taught. And he seems to have a tremendous confidence that when God's people are properly and adequately taught, and the Holy Spirit comes and it opens eyes, that there'll be transformation. And so he makes it a key point to Titus and said, for these believers in Crete, in order for them to grow, Titus, you got to teach them truth. God's word won't return void. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It does surgery. Titus, you got to teach the truth. Well, what does Paul teach? I mean, what's he continually stressing? That salvation is not the product of human activity, but it originates with God. He is relentless in his proclamation of grace. He says salvation originates in the grace of God. He starts out there. He saved us not on the basis of deeds that we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, his grace, unmerited favor. Now I know how deeply rooted we really think that we have the solution to all things. I know how deeply rooted our opinions can become. And the tentacles begin to wrap around our heart where we begin to evaluate our opinions and our solutions to a very high level, an unhealthy level. And we often think that somehow or another everything depends upon us, even our relationship with God. is fundamentally dependent, we can think, on our doing right things so then God can respond. But we have to stress that there's This is one of the most fundamental errors in human thinking. Because salvation originates in the grace of God. How do you miss it? Verse verse 7, had been justified by his grace. Backing up to verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. Verse 5, because of his great mercy. If you've experienced salvation, it's attributed to the grace of God. And it's utterly foundational and fundamental to the uniqueness of Christianity. That's why we always need to stress it is a fundamental. Salvation originates in the grace of God, but Paul goes on to tell Titus, make sure you teach that it also originates when we pour it out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Salvation originates from the grace of God. It's made available to us exclusively in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's remarkable how many people in our churches really doesn't matter what you believe, they say, as long as you're sincere. It's sincerity that counts, not necessarily the object of your belief. Some have heard preaching for years and still will say it just, it's about being sincere. It really doesn't matter what you believe. 
To me, that's why some people aren't terribly interested in missions. Because deep down, they don't have the conviction that he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And so it makes it easy to float. But Paul's telling us right here, salvation originates in the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ. If you're going to preach salvation, you better preach Christ. For salvation's found in no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. It's at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. It does matter what you believe. Salvation originates in the grace of God, in the person of Jesus Christ, and then we read in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. It's a, it's a Trinitarian work. We talk about the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons equally one person. They're equal. And we see the Trinitarian work here. He says, thirdly, our salvation originates in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, we need to understand salvation, in the New Testament especially, speaks in terms, uh, terms, I guess you could say, different tenses. In other words, a pastime tense. In the past, we can say, I have been saved, and that would, be, that would be right. We can say in the future tense, I look forward with confidence and say, I will be saved. And then in the present tense, we can look at our daily experience and say, we are being saved. But in all three dimensions, it's the Holy Spirit at work. Do you know why you're saved? You're saved because of the grace of God, an attitude of God that took the initiative and provided Jesus Christ for you. But do you know how you came to understand the message? The Spirit of God opens your blind eyes, He touched your heart, He moved through your conscience, and began to allow you to understand the depth of your sin and the wonder of Christ's glory and grace. You didn't open in your eyes. It wasn't the remarkable capabilities you had. It was the work of the Holy Spirit who inspired Scripture, empowered the messenger and the witness who came to you, who work in your heart and brought to you salvation. That's why Paul says salvation originates in the grace of God and the person of Jesus Christ through an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's called salvation. It's a free gift. It's predicated on the grace of God. Not your effort, not mine. If we're going to motivate people properly in the church, we have to do it by getting everyone to understand our salvation originated from the grace of God through the appearing of Christ and through the outworking and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It requires us to teach this at all levels. It's by grace. Threatening, challenging, tricking doesn't work. I know from experience it doesn't really motivate. But what motivates people is when they're captured by grace. Paul goes on, though. He says, not only is it important that people understand where salvation originates, it's very important they understand what salvation incorporates. We see it in verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, here's a unique phrase, by the washing of regeneration. This expression, washing of regeneration, suggests two things right on the surface. Washing implies there's some washing that's needed, that there's something dirty that requires washing. Washing implies removal of filth, cleansing from defilement. What parent hasn't sent their kid to the bathtub and said, you are filthy, go clean up. 
But you know what else is interesting to me? It's not just defilement, but you, you also notice when you don't clean up or take a bath or a shower, it's not just that you remain dirty, you begin to stink. Right? We need washing from that because a sinful life stinks. And we see it all the way around us. Lives falling apart. We need washing. It's not just washing a word. In other words, use regeneration. In its simplest form, it speaks of an opportunity for a new, fresh beginning. Now, theologians have had a wonderful time disagreeing over this word regeneration and washing. The word washing, and here's the greatest controversy, it stems from this word. And often they'll take the word washing some and refer it to baptism. And their thought process goes something like this. If a person goes through the experience of baptism, washing, that automatically, almost in a mechanical sense, ensures that person is regenerated and renewed. So what they're saying is baptism equals washing, and if you want to be regenerated and renewed, you better be baptized first. That's why you have some who say, you know what, if you have a baby, you better baptize, in their mind, wash that baby so they can go to heaven. Because if you don't, they're going to go to purgatory or hell. And so they put this emphasis on this baptism as this washing. But we need to point out nowhere to Scripture. Talk about regeneration, renewal, and reconciliation as a result of some mechanical application of a right. Rather, Scripture teaches regeneration, renewal, are a result of people responding in faith to the grace of God. In other words, Scripture says people have a new beginning, are transformed because they responded in faith in Christ and Christ alone. The whole act of faith is actually lived out when we go through the act of baptism. It's a dramatization of what's always taken place. It's not the washing that brings regeneration. We need to understand that. Washing is an act of God where we're cleansed. And I found that those who don't understand that salvation means a washing and a cleansing of their past are people who are not highly motivated. But when they do understand it, when they do understand that they've been washed clean, that they have a new heart, when they really understand that, these people are highly motivated. Highly motivated to serve. Highly highly motivated to walk in obedience. It's those who understand the depth of their sin and the necessity of a cleansing. They get excited about the wonder of that cleansing. They get excited about the Savior who did the washing. But there's that second word. Well, there's a lot of disagreement in the second word. Regeneration is a great word. Again, it speaks of a new beginning. It's the theme of being born again. Literally, regeneration has this idea of a new genesis, a new beginning. If you And the wonder of the new beginning is found in many parts, and it is a very motivating theme. And to me, the great message of the Christian gospel is God is prepared to move into the most broken life and give it a new beginning. Many of you sit here and go, <laughs> he moved into my life, and he sure gave me a new beginning. And so when you see that word regeneration, you shake your head, and inside your spirit you say, I'll praise to you, Jesus. And I hope you are grateful if you've made a decision and you've trusted Christ for what he's done 
and giving you a new beginning. And the wonder of this new beginning is that Christ becomes our Savior. He becomes our Lord. The Holy Spirit is poured out generously upon us and he becomes the dynamic at work in our experience. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now the Apostle Paul states it an imperative that these things are stressed to people so they can understand that salvation incorporates a cleansing from past defilement and the opportunity for a fresh beginning. That's motivating. Years ago, I pastored a church, and, and one of the things we did is we would um, schedule certain men to read Scripture during the Sunday morning services. So you might have a guy named Bob who reads uh, the first Sunday, or he's scheduled every six weeks, or whatever. His turn is up. This particular gentleman came up to microphone, and, and he was going to read his passage, and he said something along the lines of this. I really don't want to do this, but sometimes you've got to do what you've got to do. Oh, my heart grieved. I thought, there's someone who's really missing the whole point. I mean, you have the privilege to read the Word of God. I thought, what's he motivated by? It came out in his words, didn't it? Duty. Gotta do what you gotta do. No motivation. No motivation by the Word of God and that God in His grace decided to give us His Word. No motivation. He wasn't motivated by grace. But when you and I understand we've been cleansed from past defilements, we have a fresh beginning in Christ. That's motivating. I heard a talk by a man. He said, at night, put your slippers far under your bed. He said, so when you get up in the morning, you have to get on your knees to reach under and get them. And while you're down there, thank God for his grace, which he's abundantly poured out on your life. That was Denzel Washington, and it was addressed to Dillard University graduates. If you have a chance, if you're a graduate, especially Google Denzel Washington, Dillard, it's really, really good talk. But I like what he said. Get on your knees in the morning, because his mercies are new every morning, so what fitting time to do it, right? And thank him for his grace. Let that be your motivation as you go throughout the day. The grace of God. It's highly motivating. And so as Paul be, continues to talk about not only where se, uh, salvation originates, but what it incorporates, he also talks about this renewal by the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 again. But according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, Boy, this idea of renewing in Scripture is a beautiful theme. Colossians 3.10 tells us when you and I came to faith in Christ, we were made a new person. The old person's gone. And this new person's being made into the image of Christ, i.e. we're being renewed. Romans 12.2, we're told that there's a new man being continually renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, even though our outward body is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed. What does that mean? That means when you and I come to Christ, God gives us the opportunity to be a new person. A new person. Matter of fact, in verse 7, part of being a new creation is that we've been made heirs. How powerful is that? Heirs of Christ. And we now are those who have hope. We've been renewed by the Holy Spirit. 
And to me, it's one of the most exciting things you can tell people, particularly those who would love to be able to walk away from their past, that God can renew them, that they can experience this renewing which would bring a refreshment in them, would bring a new attitude in them, a new mind, a new passion. That's what God does in salvation. So how do you get people to do what they should? How do we get people to stop doing what they should not do? By teaching people a theology of grace. So they get so caught up in the goodness and the unmerited favor of God that an overwhelming sense of gratitude expresses itself. That's how you do it. It's the grace of God. The challenging thing to us is, first of all, to stop and say, God, what does motivate me? Or am I even motivated? And what brought you here this morning? Those are important questions. What's the motivation for you to come and worship? What's the motivation for you to serve? What's the motivation for you even to get on your knees? What's the motivation for you to give and tithe? What's your motivation? Paul's telling Titus, you better teach him that it's all by grace. And I found that's the only motivation. Those who are captured by the grace of God, they gladly pour themselves out in ministry. They gladly do. They're motivated by grace. We can plead. We can threaten. We can challenge children. We can do it to people of all ages. But I've come to the conviction that in the long run, while these may have their place in terms of motivation at times, the primary motivation is when people begin to understand that it's by the grace of God alone that brings salvation. It's gratitude toward God that motivates them to live as they should. To me, it's a call to church at Elam, call to every church, that at every level of our teaching, we teach grace. We teach that they understand they're saved by grace. The only reason they can follow Christ is because of the grace of God and the outworking of the Holy Spirit in our life. It's all by grace, lest we think too highly of ourselves. There's not a person here who wouldn't say, you know what, I really want to be more of a humble person, right? Remember a song, long uh, dating myself, Mac Davis, Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. (laughs) That's not us. If you want to be a humble person, if you want to grow in humility, you lock in on grace. That'll humble you really quickly. Now, I'm not talking about the grace that has a license to do whatever you want. That's not a biblical grace. That's some other erroneous teaching. Grace motivates us to obey Jesus. It motivates us to serve him, not to abuse it. it motivates us to serve him. If you want to honor God, be honest and ask yourselves why you do the things you do. If you serve, if you tithe, if you give of your time, if you witness and you're motivated by grace, buckle up, you're going to have an impact. God just waits for people to say thank you, to get on their knees in the morning and say, God, everything I have, my salvation, even this day, if I'm going to have any kind of impact, I affirm to you and I praise you, it's by your grace. Oh, that God's people would be motivated by grace. There's no higher calling in the world 
than to be an instrument of grace. I know you have dreams. Maybe you like to own your own business or like to save up so much you can retire early. Those are all good pursuits, but don't think it's the most important, highest calling. As a Christian, there's no higher calling than to be an instrument of God's grace. And when the church is filled with people who are taught grace, who are receive it with gratitude, you know, we won't need to beg for volunteers or we don't need to run to where people are. There'll be a motivation from the grace of God which expresses itself in gratitude to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, the wonder of your grace. God, thank you for this portion of your word. It it brings us back to really the fundamentals of the Christian faith. That we didn't bring anything to the table. But at our worst, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. At our worst, he who knew no sin became sin for us. At our worst, you demonstrated your love towards sinners in Christ Jesus. Lord, this morning we want to affirm it's by grace we've been saved. It's not of our works, so we don't boast. And Lord, I, especially going through my mind right now, is maybe somebody who's sitting in this room and says, you know, I've... I've never trusted the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for my sins. Maybe as you sit here, you think, I've actually been trying to earn it. I have hoped my good would outweigh my bad. But you haven't trusted in the grace of God. And I invite you to do that this morning, right here, right now. There's no better time. Now is the day for your salvation if you'll call out upon the Lord. And I want to lead you in a prayer. If that's you as you sit here, you're like, I need to trust Jesus today. I'm ready. And you're here, the Holy Spirit calling out to you. Make this your prayer. You can say this right in the, the place of your heart right here. To repeat this to the Lord if that's your desire. Dear Jesus, thank you this morning that you've opened my eyes. You've opened my heart. Thank you for loving me and dying for me so I could be saved. I confess I'm sinful and my sin has separated me from you. But right now I call upon your grace. I call upon your son, Jesus Christ to save me from my sin. Thank you, Jesus, for the promise that we know that we can have eternal life. And I claim that promise, and I say yes and amen to that promise. And Lord, for every believer who sits here, would you capture us by your grace? So capture us, God, we learn to see the Christian life through a different lens. 
Not like the gentleman said, I guess you got to do what you got to do. But Lord, we would look through the lens of grace and say, we get to serve you. We have the privilege to give. We have the privilege to pour our life into others. And it's our life of gratitude to your grace. Might that truly be our motivation. We ask you would do this, Jesus, in our life. In your name we pray. Amen.